0: Well then with a view to the help and guidance of God let's uh, turn to the passage we read first john and chapter 2 that's page 1865 And uh, we'll read the opening two verses. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And uh, particularly verse 1 itself, which opens by telling us that John writes, so that we might not sin, and closes by saying that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous and especially the words, we have an advocate. Now the verse uh, before us here, verse 1, brings before us a standard that we're to aim at. And at the same time, it brings before us a remedy for coming short of that standard. The standard that we aim at is a remarkable one. It is, nothing less than sinlessness. John tells us that he is writing these things to us so that we might not sin. The remedy for coming short of that standard is availing ourselves or enlisting the services of the Lord Jesus Christ as our advocate. Now, I want our thoughts really tonight to gather around what Christ is for us as an advocate. If he's not your advocate, I pray that he very soon will be. But I'd like us to contemplate what it means for Christ to be our advocate. But before we think about that, I think it's useful just to begin by thinking about the standard that we are aiming for. After all, we need the advocate because we're not getting there. But that doesn't change the fact that the standard is, as they say, what it is, and always will be what it is, the standard that God requires of us, which is holiness of life in absolute purity. I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And even if we never reach that standard, which, of course, we won't in this life, I'll come to that, but even if we don't reach the standard, it remains the standard that God requires. And he doesn't just require it in a kind of abstract or theoretical way, uh, saying, as it were, well, you ought to be holy he actually presents it before us in a very real and practical way as something that we are conscious we should be and something that we should be striving towards ourselves, even if we are not going to get there. After all, John doesn't say that you shouldn't sin. He doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't even put it that way at all. He says, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. Now, you'll notice the importance of that. It brings the whole idea of sinlessness and purity right into the reason for which he's writing. So he's not saying something like, well, it would be a wonderful ideal to be pure, but you will never be that. He's saying that the purpose of my letter is to keep you from sin. I am writing that you may not sin. So it's not given really as a statement about what we should be, but it's a statement about what we should practically be aiming at every single day of life. And you can see the difficulty with this kind of thing, I suppose, uh, right away. Because we're very conscious that we do all sin. All of us. And I suppose it's very reasonable in the light of that to ask a very straightforward question. What is the point of setting before us a a standard that's supposed to be even remotely practical if the fact of the matter is that we're simply never going to reach it? But the answer to that is that there is no other standard possible except this standard that God actually requires. God would be less than God if he set another standard before us. The standard that God requires is a standard that must be our daily aim, to be holy as he is holy, or else the standard must be making an allowance for sin. And how can that be right? Suppose instead of saying every morning, well, by the grace of God, I will resolve to try not to sin today. Suppose we resolved instead that I'm going to try and sin only a little today. What does that really mean? Where are you going to relax? Where are you not going to be vigilant again? What part is it of your thoughts or your words or your speech that you're not going to care all that much about? Because after all, you've resolved that you're only going to sin a little, which means that you will sin a little. To take it into another walk of life, supposing you have a a drinker who has serious difficulty with drink and he's aiming constantly for sobriety, absolute sobriety. Normally he says, I'm not going to drink today. Imagine for a moment if he said, I'm only going to drink a little today. You can see immediately that he has a problem. Even the slightest lowering of that standard is obviously fatal. He's got to have it as a pure standard all the time. I am not going to drink today. Now in spiritual matters it's the same. That's got to be your standard and you can't let it slip. To lower the bar is to deliberately let sin in. That's what you're doing. You're going to make allowances for it every day and you're going to, worse than that, start making covenants with it every day. By covenants, I mean something similar to what Israel did with the Canaanites. When they were supposed to get rid of the Canaanites out of the land because of the evil, they found it was difficult and costly to do so. So they ended up making relationships with them. Um, They wouldn't bother them if they would stay in their place. Of course, they never did. They grew and they came to give difficulty. What I mean by making a covenant with sin is simply that, that you start tolerating areas of sin in your thoughts, words, and deeds. You, you cease to fight against them, and you say, well, providing they they don't bother me all that much, then I won't be too bothered with them. You notice what's happening? If they don't bother me, well, I'm not going to bother with them too much. They're there, and so I'm not going to get too upset about it. Now, don't uh, misunderstand me. It's one thing to say that um, sin will come in. It's another thing to say that I don't mind if it does or it doesn't matter if it does. It's God's will that we sin not. Now, this resolution uh, comes up with a stubborn fact. The stubborn fact is that we sin daily. And we sin daily in a very prevailing way. We sin daily in thought and in word and in deed. And in fact, John says here that if we try and get around that by saying, well, it's not really sin. If we say that we have no sin as such, you're deceiving yourself. The truth isn't actually in you. He says, you are sinning and you're sinning every day. And he puts it another way. If we say that we have not sinned, Even if God's word comes to us and shows us that we have sinned, if we try and get around that, try and justify ourselves, or say that we're mitigating circumstances or whatever, if if we say that we effectively have not sinned, he says, you're making God a liar, and the truth of God is not in you. So these are two apparently irreconcilable facts. Aiming for absolute purity in spite of the fact that every single day of your life, unlike the drinker, you are going to come short. And that's why finding the right attitude to sin is very, very difficult. And uh, we were talking about this not that long ago, actually, that it's one of the hardest things in the Christian life to have a right attitude to sin, to make sure that you're always bothered by it, but not crushed by it. To make sure that you don't make an uneasy peace with it. To make sure that you're not overwhelmed by it. And yet to be really careful about it. Striving and fighting against it. So what is the right attitude? Well the right attitude is to keep the standard high and every single day you fail to recognize that there's a provision for that. And it doesn't matter how often you need that provision, that provision is there. Even when you think that that provision is weary of you, or when you may be tempted to to weary going to him, that provision remains. Set the aim high and deal with a daily coming short. And the provision that God has made for us is clearly in the letter here. The good news is, and it is good news, that as a sinner, and as a sinner tonight, you have an advocate. You set the bar this morning where you always set the bar, at least I hope you did. But even tonight, you're still here in the same old way. You've sinned. In many ways, you've sinned since you came in the door. But the fact is that you have an advocate. That's our hope, and it's our only hope. You're going to the Lord's Supper because you have an advocate. And he is an advocate with the Father, or literally in the Greek, an advocate towards the Father. He's doing business towards the Father. He is your advocate, and he is the only one who can deal with the problem of sin. And Thank God that he does. Jesus Christ, if any man sin, we have an advocate. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the Righteous One. That righteousness is important. We'll come to it, but he is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Now, the Greek word for advocate is a word that you sometimes come across if you read um, certain, maybe more theological works. It's the word paraclete, which comes from Two Greek words which mean to call alongside. Someone to come alongside you with the purpose of helping you. That's what a paraclete is. You need help, and the paraclete is the helper. And going on the strict roots of the words, you're calling on the helper, you're shouting on him, and you're saying, I need help, and the helper comes alongside. He's para. He's parallel to you. He's your paraclete. You've called on him. Now, in the general sense, that's applied to anybody really who's a helper. Of course, there's a famous application of this name paraclete to the third person of the Trinity. He is called in a very special way a paraclete in the Gospels. Although we forget that he's called another paraclete. Jesus described him as another paraclete. He called him another paraclete because he is himself a paraclete, which we'll come to in a second. But the Holy Spirit is the one that we preeminently think of as the helper. Now that word paraclete is translated a comforter sometimes because he fortifies us. He's a comforter. It's translated as a helper because he helps. Now there are Several translations of it. But the idea is just coming alongside to help. But the thing is that the term paraclete acquired a very technical and special sense as time went on. It came to be used for a special kind of helper. That is a helper in a court of law. Um, People who helped in a law court were paracletes. And hence the translation here, advocate. And it's a right translation. Although it would be right to say that if any man sin, we have a helper. That would be right. There's nothing wrong with that. If any man sin, we have a comforter. That would be true enough. But it's the word advocate that gets where John is getting here. It's a legal setting all the way through god is a judge on his throne in his heavenly courtroom and we are the ones who are needing help we're in the dock we are the ones who have sinned we're the ones who need that help and when he says that christ here is our paraclete he means our advocate and as i mentioned earlier notice that he's towards the father this advocate is facing towards God. He may be our helper, all right, but he is facing towards God. That tells us that he's engaged in advocacy. He's performing a legal function here. He's doing so in the heavenly courtroom, and he's doing so towards the Father on your behalf and on mine. So I suppose when we think of uh, Christ and the Spirit, the paraclete and another paraclete, the best way to think of them is that the Spirit is a, an advocate inside, is a sorry, not an advocate, he's a paraclete inside, a comforter, an encourager. Whereas the Lord Jesus Christ is the formal paraclete outside of us, he is the advocate standing legally in the heavenly courtroom, representing your interests, even now representing your interest as a sinner before God who is the judge. Now I hope, and I'm sure we all believe, and I hope we feel too, that we must all give our account to God. I hope we know and feel too that the ultimate court in the universe is God's court. It's the final court of judgment. From it there is no court of appeal The judge who sits on the throne of the universe is the judge of all the earth and he dispenses the final rewards. He announces the ultimate verdict. Guilty or not guilty. And it's really only when we have a sense of the reality of that and the necessity for every one of us personally and individually appearing in that courtroom not as per, not as observers of a, of a scene of some kind or a trial but actually as in the dock ourselves on judgment for the sins that we have committed and done in this life it's only when we have a sense of the tremendous and awful nature of that that, that we will desire some kind of advocacy to present our case before the father And thankfully, there's an advocate that we can call on. Now, you need to be wise enough to call on him. And sad to say we're not. By nature, we're not wise enough to call on him. In fact, sad to say, even when we come to believe the reality of these things, the reality of a God and of a judgment seat and of our sin and of our necessity of appearing there, Perhaps we still think that we can somehow defend ourselves. You may think yourself, as natural people, we sometimes do, we think that our lives are defensible. Uh, people speak about, well, is what you've done defensible? And you may say, well, okay, what I did there was not defensible. But if someone were to say to you, is your life defensible? You would take umbrage and you say, well, yes, my life is defensible. I believe I can defend my life. I believe I can advocate myself. And there are people who believe, um, well, it's a very confident century, the 21st century, there are an increasing number of people who take it upon themselves to defend themselves in courtrooms. I mean, it's, it's just a fact, certainly in many countries in the West, that the number of people who dispense with advocates and professional lawyers is getting higher all the time, so they undertake to litigate on their own behalf. Of course, they've got a poor record of success. I'll come to that in a second, too. But there's different reasons why they do this. I mean, one, sometimes is sadly a lack of money. But let's just leave that aside for the moment, although I'll come back to that, too. But the most common reasons for dispensing with professional advocates are, first of all, no confidence in them. The lawyers are not particularly good, They're not particularly reliable. They're not really in it for you. They're in it for themselves. What matters for them is what they can get out of it, not really what they can get out of it for yourself. The second reason can sometimes be that people are really confident in their own ability to get themselves off the hook. And that's maybe for a variety of reasons. Some people believe that they're innocent themselves. And some people believe that even if they're not innocent, they can persuade the judge that they actually are, and that they can pull the wool over the judge's eyes. Interestingly enough, the expression pulling the wool over the eyes actually comes from a courtroom, as far as I understand it originally. The idea is that you pull the the wool, uh, the covering that's on the the head, which is a symbol of authority, that you pull it down over the eyes and uh, you confuse the judge. Some people believe that they can actually pull the wool over the eyes of the judge. So you fall into the trap, and it's a common trap of thinking that something's easier than it actually is. And sometimes you look at something being done and you think, oh, well, I can do that, you know. And then then when you actually try to do it, you realize that it's a little bit more difficult. But some people think they can advocate for themselves very well, in a court of law. Now, as I said a minute ago, it's not a very successful tactic because the people who have started to defend themselves are not very successful as a whole. Why not? Well, for obvious reasons. Number one, if you try and do it, you're usually overestimating yourself. You're estimating perhaps your own righteousness. You're determined that you didn't break a law when in reality you did but you didn't really understand the law properly. If you had understood the law properly, perhaps you wouldn't have been so foolish. You're overestimating, too, your own ability to persuade the judge or to deceive him. You think you're very able, very clever, very articulate, or even simply persuasive. Maybe even with something like charm. Maybe you think you can flatter the judge. These things don't work. And as well as overestimating yourself, you're underestimating the judge. You're underestimating the judge's knowledge of the law. You're underestimating his experience. You're underestimating his ability to understand you, to see through you when you're in the dock, to see through your arguments, and to see through your evasions. How we can take apart the case that you tried to put together very, very quickly and leave you with nothing at all. Now, if that happens in a human court, what do you think happens in the divine court? What do you think happens when a sin cries out to God for restitution? What do you think happens when you sin before God and when I sin before God, whether in thought or word or deed? When we go one day to stand in the dock ourselves, in the glory of glories, and the Lord, the Ancient of Days, himself is the judge, what do you suppose happens on that day if we try to advocate for ourselves? After all, first of all, the judge that we're dealing with there, he he doesn't just know the law, he wrote it. And it's a reflection of his own holiness and his righteousness. And he loves that law by which you're judged and I'm judged far more than any earthly judge loves the law that he's administering. And what's more, having written it, he's never forgotten it. In his omniscience, he remembers it all. Every single jot and tittle of every commandment that he ever gave. He knows exactly how all these commandments apply to you in your day-to-day life. He knows when they apply to you. And as David said, when he's thought about the law of God, your commandments are exceeding broad. Exceeding broad they are. And the only one who knows them and how far they penetrate and how wide they reach and how they catch you in their snares is the judge before whom you appear. And as well as knowing that, this judge knows you. I mean, the earthly judges, through experience, they just get to figure people out. When you've watched person after person after person after person in the dock, you start listening, you start watching, and you recognize the evasions, the subterfuge, the bluff. But what about this one? This God sees right through you. Knows absolutely everything about you. And he knows in this fabric of thought, words, and deeds, this fabric that you've woven over, what, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of life, he's known the millions of sins that you've committed and how exactly they are sins, how many of them are sins against more than just one commandment. He knows the whole lot. And he knows your pathetic attempt to defend it before you even open your mouth. And as for you, the defendant, well, well, we've all got our our ideas by nature as to how we're going to defend ourselves. And, you know, many people, when they say, well, my life is defensible and I can give account before God, I mean, deep down, they don't even respect God. They don't even respect the judge. They spend their lives questioning God's goodness and his justice. And they think that they will fill their mouth with arguments. And the kind of arguments that people use to fill their mouth with and they think they're going to pour out before God at the judgment seat are the kind of ones they will pour out before yourself when you speak to them. The kind of reasons that they give you paradoxically for not believing in God. But if he's there, well, I'll stand before him and I'll give my account. Personal arguments. Why did my mother die when I was young? Why did my father take my own life? Why did you permit that? There's a church elder down the road from me, and I know he was less than straight in his dealings, even if everyone else thought he was straight in his dealings. Besides so all that I've got big cosmic questions. I'd like to ask you about famines and about wars, about rapes and about tortures and about murders. I'd like to ask you very deep questions about where sin came from. In other words, as far as these people are concerned, as far as we're all concerned by nature, when it comes to the Day of Judgment, it's God in the dock. We're the judges. God had better give account and satisfy us as to how he's managed to rule the universe. At least, that's what we think. Job was a fine Christian man. But of course, his providence, as you well know, went upside down and became very difficult. In pretty much one fell swoop, in just a moment of time, he lost his family. He lost all his wealth. He lost his reputation in the community and beyond. In fact, to the ends of the earth where he was well known and he finally lost his own health scraping himself because he was itchy from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot on a gnash heap outside his house. And at one point he says to God that if he could appear just before God, he would, as I said earlier, fill his mouth with arguments. He had a lot of questions to ask God. A lot of questions. Believers sometimes do. At the end of the book of Job, when God suddenly appears and he starts to answer Job, just a little into the answer, Job puts his hand on his mouth and he says, Behold, he says, I am vile. I'm vile, he says. Later on, when God's answered, well, actually, God doesn't answer his questions. What God does is ask him a blistering series of questions back designed to expose the limited nature of Job's understanding. And when these questions are finished, Job simply confesses that hearing about God was one thing, but seeing about him, seeing him was something altogether different. And he says, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Where have your questions gone, Job? Well, they've simply disappeared. The only answer they got was the only answer they needed, and that is a vision of the glory of God. Once we are brought into the heavenly courtroom, we see the glory and the splendor of that courtroom. When we see the glory of the Ancient of Days who sits on the throne, do you think our defense will begin? Do you think we begin to question about famines and tortures and wars and rapes and murders? No. No. We are immediately struck by our utter insignificance, by our complete and utter sinfulness in the sight of a holy, righteous, and just God. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the lordship of this great God. You need a lawyer. Forget defending yourself. You need a lawyer. Anybody who knows a courtroom will tell you on this earth, you need a lawyer. Sometimes if your problem is bad, they'll say, you need an advocate. Sometimes they may say, you need a KC. You need to spend your life savings on a KC because you are in trouble. Well, friends, when it comes to the heavenly court, let me tell you, you need an advocate because you haven't got a leg to stand on. You don't. The sentence will be hell. And we need the best advocate money can buy. And the good news is that the best advocate is available for all of you. And even better, he's free of charge. Uh, Advocates cost a lot of money. I was going to say Queen's, king's counsels cost an awful lot of money. But the best advocate... In the world, and that the world has ever seen, is available for you free of charge. Now if I say that to you, and I say it to you tonight as a, if you're here as a sinner who hasn't come to Christ, or if I say it to you as a Christian for whom sin is a real problem, perhaps in a a real catastrophic way, maybe very recently in your life or maybe not so recently in your life, or maybe you just have a day-to-day problem with the difficulty that is repeated, repeated to the point where you feel, well, of no, no, this can be real. If, if, if my Christian life is real, why am I so? Like Rebecca said, when her pregnancy was um, supposed to be a gift of God, but she was so conscious of absolute turmoil inside of herself. And she said, if, if this is God's gift and God's pregnancy, why am I this way? Until God said, There's two in your womb, and they represent two nations, and they will struggle against each other all the time. And if I'm telling you tonight that there is an advocate available who is free of charge, I suppose the first thing you would want to know is his record. And for that, you might possibly want to go to his experience. How long has he practiced? Oh, well, let's see. in connection with this advocate that since he passed his exams, he's been practicing for 2,000 years. And as far as his success percentage goes, it's 100. He has never taken a case that he's lost. Simple as that. The big thing for you is getting the case in his hands. You get the case in his hands... And that statistic starts to work for you, personally. But you need to get the case in his hands. Because he's won 100%. And you may say, well, okay, but are there any lost causes? He may have won 100% thus far, but is there such a thing as a lost cause when it comes to putting yourself in the hands of Christ. Is there someone about whom Christ will say, I'm not taking your case? The Roman Catholic Church advocates prayers to certain saints. Certain saints uh, supposedly have certain strengths. And if you pray to these saints, these strengths will be mediated to you. I'm not, of course, endorsing any of that. I'm just stating that that's what they believe. St. Jude Is one of the saints that they pray to. Um, St. Jude, famously, is the patron saint of lost causes. So if you have a cause that seems lost, you're supposed to pray to St. Jude's. Well, friends, uh, St. Jude will not do that for you. Uh, Jude was himself a brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the flesh. Um, Of course, a half-brother, as all his brothers and sisters were. Uh, He was a wonderful believer. He's gone to glory, but he's no patron saint of lost causes. But the fact is that Jesus Christ is an advocate for lost causes. What do I mean by lost causes? Well, I mean some pretty desperate situations. I was thinking earlier today myself of even of um, how Aaron was uh, responsible for supervising the molding of a golden calf which led so many thousands of Israelites astray. Could he give his case into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ? He did. The Lord took the case. The result, an acquittal. David was consumed with lust for the wife of a friend of his. And you know that he committed adultery with her. There was a child from the Union which he tried to cover up by getting the husband to spend time with the wife which he refused to do because the rest of the army were away at war What a noble man Uriah was. The only answer for David was to arrange for Uriah to die on the battlefield which he did arrange. Can you imagine David saying can you take my case? Can you believe that the Lord says, yes, I'll take your case? And can you believe that he gets him an acquittal? Or think of someone we thought of very recently, just the other night. Think of Peter, who shamefully denied the Lord and effectively denied the faith. And he did so with a sinful flourish of oaths and curses. I sometimes try and it was an awful night that night. An awful, awful night. And uh, evil was thick in the air. There are times when the blessing of the Lord is thick in the air. And there are times when the presence of evil is thick in the air. And the presence of evil was thick in the air. Judas went and hanged himself because he had sold the Lord. Which was not in itself an unpardonable sin. Had he put his case into the hands of the Lord? But he wasn't destined to do that. And he didn't do that. But Peter himself. Oaths and curses. If you had sat around the fire. Suppose you were a spectator. Suppose you could revisit that scene. And you could just look on as it was enacted that night. Just a little in front of him. The Lord is being tried. A seething multitude beginning to gather around the hostility the oaths and the curses that Peter spoke denying that he even knew who the Lord Jesus Christ was he went out and he wept bitterly will you take my case can you take my case yes the Lord says I'll take your case and these are all them but what about you I mean I don't know you you don't know me We don't know everything about each other. I'm sure there are things we would all like to hide from each other. What have you done? What have you done in the past? Maybe it's even known. Maybe it raises its head at this particular time. And the devil would use it as a reason for not coming forward to stand on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like I said earlier, maybe it's just this wretched, repeated sin. A sin that so easily besets you. And in fact, one of the things that makes you even a little bit slow in enlisting the help of the advocate tonight is the fact that you know if you give him a call, and if you give him a call, of course, by prayer, which is how you enlist his services, he's free of charge, but you need to call him. So if you give him a call, you would have to say, it's me. And it's me again. And it's me with the same offence and with the same sin. And you know what it is before I say it, even if you require me to say it. And I know that the judge knows this offence as well. But will you still take my case? Even if my sin has dishonoured you, and even if my sin has brought shame upon your cause... Will you still take my case? What does the Lord say to that? Yes, he says, I'll take your case. Your sin dishonored me, brought shame upon me. It dishonored my father and brought shame upon my heavenly father's cause. But I'll take your case. I don't want to see you perish. I don't want to see you guilty. I don't want to see you consigned to a lost eternity. I will take your case. So he is the advocate of lost causes. You remember that tonight. You may see something in your life with absolute abhorrence. So did Peter. You've probably never wept as bitterly as Peter did in the light of what he did. He doesn't just take your case, this advocate, but he gives you his all. There's a famous saying about advocates, about a good advocate, that a good advocate only knows his own client. Now, there's good and bad in that. The good in that is that he's absolutely committed to you. A good advocate is absolutely committed to you, he's concerned with getting you the best possible outcome. The bad in it is that sometimes that advocate is prepared to do things that he may, that he ought not to do in order to get you the outcome that he wants on your behalf. That's not so good, and as we'll see in a moment, that's not true in connection with this advocate, but what's good in that saying is true of the Lord Jesus Christ, that a good advocate knows only his client, and To apply it to this, the Lord Jesus Christ gives you his absolute attention. Is there a sin bothering you? Is your sinful life bothering you? Is there something just now bothering you that feels, makes you feel you're disqualified? Pretty much from the Christian life or from the Lord's table. He's giving that. If you enlist, give him a call. He'll give you a 100% attention. And the wonder of who he is in his divine human constitution, the wonder of who he is means that he's never distracted by the umpteen number of other cases that he has. Sometimes when you're being represented by somebody, you're a little bit afraid that he's busy representing others. And you may be afraid that he's representing people who have a bigger name and a better reputation and more cash than you do but because of who this person is and because of what his character is like, however many cases he's got, he's never distracted by them. It's like his love in that respect. The the love that Christ has to you is not diminished by the fact that he has love for others. The, The relationship between you and God is as total and committed on his part as though there was only you and him in the universe. The addition of others doesn't um, diminish his love in any way. He's still 100% yours, as he's 100% yours, and 100% yours, and I pray 100% mine. Well, his attention to your case is exactly the same. He feels the burden of your guilt. He is concerned for your affliction. He is concerned for your need to find forgiveness. And this advocate can only see his own client. Believe it, friends, he will be your lawyer and he will be your advocate as though no one else was on his caseload. And he will work tirelessly on your behalf before God we have an advocate in the Greek towards the father all the time advocating on your behalf and as well as taking your case and giving it is all he is able to guarantee your acquittal Uh, advocates make promises about well some do about what they're going to achieve. Some are careful not to. The Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely upfront. Give me your case and you'll be acquitted. And the acquittal is not guilty. Not guilty is not the same as innocent. There's a couple of ways in which not guilty is not the same as innocent. But the way in which it matters for us at the moment is, well, they're very different. Because you're not innocent. If, if I am going to ask this advocate to take uh, my case for, for my sin which is bothering me, I'm absolutely not innocent of that sin. I've committed that sin. It is mine. I did it. And in fact, the Holy Spirit has really impressed that upon me, that it is actually my sin. I'm, I'm not innocent but the Lord Jesus Christ will get me a not guilty verdict. How can you be not innocent and not guilty? Well, it's all because of what guilt really is. The Latin word behind guilt means a liability for punishment. That's, that's really what guilt is. If you are guilty, you are liable for punishment. The, the word guilt doesn't mean you did it. Uh, The word guilt means you're liable for punishment on the basis that you did it. But you did it, but you're not liable for punishment. How come? How come? How come you're not guilty when you're not innocent? Well, the answer to that, to see the answer to that, just take a look at your advocate's hands. Take a close look at your advocate's hands. If you can see it, take a look at his side. Take a look at his feet. The advocate still carries these wounds. Wounds which teach one thing, that the judge has already laid the liability for your sins on his account. He became liable. He was innocent and liable. We are not innocent And not liable. That's miraculous. And it's all because of this. Marvelous substitution. This glorious exchange. Jesus innocent. Guilty. We not innocent. Not guilty. The Lord laid on him. The iniquity of us all. And therefore he is guilty. Liable to judgment. And judged he was which will consider, God willing, tomorrow and on the Lord's day. Judged he was for the guilt. Judged he was for the sin that's bothering you. The sins collective that are bothering you. He was judged for that. And because he was punished, you're not liable anymore. This is straightforward legal stuff in that respect. It's certainly profound and wonderful and glorious. But in terms of legal stuff, it's straightforward enough. You are not innocent. But at the same time, you are not guilty. So he takes your case, he gives you his all, and he guarantees your acquittal. But although he does all that, you need to step back a little bit and say this. Before he takes your case, you need to know that he is righteous. You know all that about him, but all that depends on him being righteous and always being righteous. And isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit writes that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. How does that come into play? Well, it's not so much, or at least it's not simply a statement of his own inherent integrity and holiness, um, his dependability, his right conduct and his right speech and all that. That is all true. But the fact that he is all that is meant to be important for us in the courtroom when it comes to his dealings with us as defendants and his dealings with God the judge. He's righteous with you, the defendant, and he's righteous with God, the judge. Let's take first that he's righteous with you. That means that he's not going to take your case unless you confess. He won't take it unless you confess. You've got to be clear about that. He's not going to enter a plea unless you confess it. There's going to be no not guilty entered. I mean, that's the plea that he he enters for all his clients. Not guilty. But he's not going to enter it unless you confess. And that confession, as we heard last night, must be a full confession. Must be a hearty confession. After all, (laughs) he knows you did it. Some advocates don't know whether their clients did it or not. This advocate knows you did it. He knows how you did it. He knows that the degree of sin is far greater than you think it to be. And he insists on you taking ownership of that sin. One of the reasons for that is because he's not just in the business of getting you off the hook, he's on the business of changing your life. And confessing your sin has as much to do with changing your life as it does with getting you off the hook. That's another sermon for another time. But you need to take ownership of it. That means that the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come to him to take your case, doesn't want mitigations. He doesn't want to hear about extenuant circumstance, extenuating circumstances. He doesn't want to hear you say, I couldn't help it. He doesn't want to hear you say, well, that was my weak point. What am I supposed to do? That was my besetting sin. He doesn't want you to say, that's the way I'm made. He doesn't want David to say, why was Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop anyway? He doesn't want Peter to say, well, how could I avoid doing that in that situation? He doesn't want any of that stuff. Because, why? Well, because it's not real. Everyone's sin is their own personal responsibility. If I try and make someone else sin, I am responsible for trying to make that person sin. But the sin of that person is his call. A woman, her call. Bathsheba stands for what she did wrong. David stands for what he did wrong. And there's never an excuse. We spend our lives, and it seems to me that this this malady just gets worse and worse and worse in society, of excusing ourselves as well as blaming others. And of course, blaming others we excuse ourselves. It's everybody's fault that we're in the state within. I'm like this because of the government, and uh, because of my neighbours, and because of the police, or because of pushers, or because of my poverty, or because... It's because of my sin, at the end of the day. Some circumstances really don't help me in life. They don't maybe help you, but you're a sinner because you're a sinner. We choose to sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to make full confession of that. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar. Now, one way in which we say that we have not sinned is by just redefining it. Oh, that wasn't adultery; that was an affair. That sounds a lot nicer than adultery. Um, and so it goes on. Full ownership. I have sinned and sinned against thee, and I alone am responsible for it. It's amazing how uh, when Psalm 51 is finally just forced out of David, I don't mean that it wasn't voluntary. What I mean is that God had to really move to get David's heart to a position where he really saw himself and took ownership of it. But uh, when he got to that place, you'll notice that there's no mention of anybody else being to blame. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned. It's just a matter between himself and God. He needs to deal with it as a matter between himself and God. And as well as that full confession, as well as that confession being full, it must be a genuinely repentant confession. In other words, there has to be a desire to forsake it. If the advocate... um, comes to you and sees somebody who's just going to carry on doing the same thing deliberately, you've got no real intention of dropping, he's not going to take your case either. Now that's very different from the fact that we sometimes do fall in the same areas again and again and again. That is a fact and it doesn't put him off taking your case and it doesn't put him off re-representing you or representing you again and again. It doesn't put him off. But if you have no intention of changing your ways, he will not take your case. The desire to forsake it must be there because again his pardon is bound up with renewal of character. He's not just concerned to get you off a hook. He's concerned to make you whole. He's concerned to make you whole. He's concerned to bring you into such a near union of himself because this is the thing, you see, the the advocate cares about you. Uh, he's, He's not doing a job. He's doing a great work, all right. But but the reward lies in you. It's a labor of love. A labor of love is defined by a, a labor that has its own reward in itself. Don't need anything else beyond the reward that the labor itself gives. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He, his labor is to change you to be like himself in a fellowship of, of um, love and knowledge Uh, extending into all eternity. He's interested in that. So he needs you to be forsaking this sin. He wants you to be on a quest. He wants you to be on a mission. He wants you to have a desire to be in your father's house, not just in the dock in your father's courtroom. And again, as we heard last night, that resolve to forsake must be there. Now, sometimes it's difficult to confess sin like that. You may sometimes think that it's easy to confess that kind of sin. Not always. But facing up to the truth about yourself can be really hard. It can be really hard. But you know, this advocate um, is part of a team. And uh, he sends, he sends um, I don't want to call him a junior advocate. You probably know why I don't want to call him that. But in terms of the way the Trinity works, he sends another comforter, he sends another advocate, and he sends him into your heart to bring you to that place of real, genuine confession. Mm -hmm. And when that confession sometimes comes out, it comes out, as Paul said, with groanings which can't be uttered. You're ashamed of yourself, ashamed of who you were, who you are. It's not very pretty sometimes to see who you are. But he works that confession into you and he works it out of you. That's what the assistant advocate does. And the first advocate sees to it that he carries out that mission on his own behalf. That's what happened famously when Peter went out into the night and he wept bitterly. Why did he wept bitterly? Because the other advocate was working that into his heart. Praise God for that. Um, you see, you've always got to go back behind everything and find God working there. Even when it's our acts, you've got to go behind them all and find God working there. The advocate was the one who sent the assistant advocate to bring that confession out. He'll make sure that he hears it. And when he's finished his work, in you, what he says is, or what you say is, I will confess unto the Lord. My trespasses, said I. So he's righteous in his dealings with you, this advocate. Last of all, he's righteous in his dealings towards the father. I don't know if you sometimes see um, a courtroom and you see a judge and an advocate. Eyeball to eyeball, wary of each other. The more skilled they are, the more wary they are of each other. The advocate, one of the first things the advocate wants to know who the judge is. The judge wants to know who the advocates are because there's stuff going on all the time. This quote from Friends is different. The, The judge and the advocate have known each other from all eternity. The advocate knows the judge, knows his integrity as the Ancient of Days, He knows his majesty. He knows that this judge has none of the failings that human judges sometimes have. This judge never respects persons. This judge never gets out of bed on the wrong side in the morning and has a bad day at the office. It's bad news for a defendant when that judge has a bad day at the office. He's the judge of all the earth, and he always does right. He's always wide awake. He knows exactly what's going on. The advocate knows that. And the judge knows the advocate. In this case, he knows that the advocate always goes by the book. He's a righteous advocate. He never tries to flatter the judge. In this case, that's a waste of time anyway. Not that this advocate would try to do it. He doesn't try to bluff the judge. He doesn't try to outmaneuver the judge or to pull the wool over his eyes. There's no verbal sparring, no verbal dexterities, nothing like that. It's straightforward. It's above board. There's something, if if such profound things weren't at stake, there's something majestic in seeing it, how this advocate appears before the judge and how the judge is before the advocate. The respect, the mutual respect, The mutual admiration between two persons of the Trinity as they face each other in a courtroom. One as the judge of all the earth and the other as the advocate of his own people. Face to face. The two who have been face to face in a bond of love from all eternity. And in a sense, all that the Advocate has to say is that I died for this man or woman, I prayed for this person, and now I plead for this person, and the plead that I plea that I present is not guilty on the basis of these the wounds that I bore. Now if you enlist the services of this advocate. Without money and without price, and remember you enlist by asking, humbly and meekly, with a willingness to confess. If you ask, well John tells us wonderfully, in verse 8, Of chapter 1, that is, if we say we have no sin, if we dress ourselves up to appear as though we haven't got any, we're just simply deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us, but here we have it. Come to the Advocate, if you confess our sins, he is faithful, God is faithful, and he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the wonderful thing. If you actually confess what's bothering you, do that. Big or or small. Big or relatively small. Take it to God. Just take it to God. Take it to God now even. Take it now in your seat before the Lord's Supper, will you not? Take it. What follows? Well, it's wonderful. There's a cleansing of your soul for a start. He cleanses you from sin. Nothing else does that. That's not getting rid of guilt. That's actually a washing. Um, I don't know if anything can can wash a person's soul. Can anything undo what was done? Suppose you sin, suppose you do a bad thing, can anything undo it? No. The the black spot that it puts there, there's a defiling um, element in every sin that you commit. But there's a washing power in the Holy Spirit that takes it away. Renews your soul to where it was before. As well as that, there's a restoration of the fellowship that was broken between you and God by that sin. And every time you sin, there's a breach until you confess it. When you confess it, that's restored. And it's restored horizontally with the people of God too. All that follows. And if you're troubled tonight by any sin or for any reason, uh, don't waste time with another advocate. Don't, for any favor, think you can deal with it yourself. Don't overestimate yourself. Don't underestimate the judge. Don't go to a priest who may well promise you that he can do that work for you. Oh, yes, give your concern of soul to the church. The Church will look after you. No, she won't. No, she won't. Get the best advocate on the case, the Lord Jesus Christ, righteous in his dealings with you and his dealings with God. One hundred percent success rate. Why would you go to anybody else? Let us pray. Eternal God, we bless you this evening that we have such an advocate. And in his own power and ability, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, we bless you that he is not wearied in his task, as we sometimes are in all of ours. He is never reluctant to forgive sins when sinners put their sinful souls into his own hands. These things we find difficult to understand considering he is the one that is always wounded and offended by every wrong thing that we do. How marvelous that he should suffer the consequences and that he should plead the blessings. What a saviour is ours. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And at verse 3. Now, please, uh, I extended the invitation to you. Please come. There's, there's plenty there, and uh, it would be good to have. Fellowship, so you're all very welcome to come to the mass afterwards. Uh, but we'll close by singing at verse 3, uh, when David says, that's before he, well, he was neglecting the advocate, not confessing, when I refrained my speech and silent was my tongue, my bones then waxed old because I roared all day long. This is an ongoing experience. Could you tell by looking at him? Upon me both day and night thine hand did heavy lie, so that my moisture turned is in summer's drought thereby. And then these wonderful words. I thereupon have unto thee my sin acknowledged. Just do that. Likewise mine iniquity I have not covered. Don't cover it yourself any more. You're a poor advocate, so am I. Instead I will confess unto the Lord my trespasses, said I. And of my sin thou freely didst forgive the iniquity. Let's time to sing these dances. <laughs>